0: My uh, title this morning, uh, Tough Times Last, So Do Tough People, is stolen at least in part from uh, the title of Dr. Robert Shuler's new book, Tough Times Don't Last, Tough People Do. Uh, I agree at least in part with Dr. Shuler that uh, tough people, that is those who are made tough by God's grace, do last. I'm not at all sure that tough times don't last. Sometimes they do, and uh, some of you can agree, you're probably here this morning feeling like Latter-day Jobes. Uh, one thing after another has uh, happened to you over the past uh, months or, or years. You keep saying to yourself, cheer up, things could get worse, and uh, you cheer up, and sure enough, they do get worse, and uh, the the light at the end of the tunnel turns out to be an on-rushing train. Uh <laughs> And you're wondering if, if there will ever be any, uh, any relief or any, any let-up. If this is so, then Jeremiah has a word of comfort and hope and encouragement for you uh, this morning from our passage. Will you turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 29, where we read, this is, a, this is the text of a letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles. And to the priests, the prophets, and all the other people, Nebuchadnezzar carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. And then parenthetically, this was after King Jehoiakim and the queen mother, the court officials, and the leaders of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the artisans, had gone into exile from Jerusalem. He entrusted the letter to Elassah, king of Shaphan, and to Gemariah, son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to king Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. Just a little bit of introductory material there. Uh, this uh, letter was sent by Jeremiah, our prophet, to the exiles in Babylon. We know from Jeremiah's uh, book, chapter 52, that there were about 3,000 exiles that had been deported by Nebuchadnezzar three years prior to the writing of this, of this letter. Uh, they were the artisans, the craftsmen, the professional people, the court officials, the king and, uh, and his mother, as well as others, Daniel was there, having been taken about uh, three years before this exile. Ezekiel was taken in 597 with this group of exiles. When they left uh, Judah, Jerusalem, there were about 10,000 of them. When they arrived in Babylon, there were only 3,000, about 7,000 perished in the forced march march from, uh, from Jerusalem to uh, the city of Nippur, where they were, uh, where they were exiled. They apparently had a lot of a lot of freedom. They could farm and they could engage in uh, business and industry and and commerce. They were pretty much left uh, to themselves in little cities just to the south of the city of Babylon in what today would be southern uh, Iraq. And it's to these people that, uh, that Jeremiah writes and sent it with uh, a couple of couriers who were uh, evidently sent to Nebuchadnezzar with uh, some sort of official dispatches, they were carrying the diplomatic pouch from uh, from Judah to uh, to Babylon. And their names are given here, Elisa and Gemariah. They took the letter. The text of the letter follows in uh, verse 4. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. That's the first thing we need to observe about this, this letter. God himself accepts responsibility for the exile. It wasn't Babylon who, uh, who did this to Judah, though they were the instruments that, that uh, the Lord used. The Lord himself accepts ultimate and final responsibility for this action. I carried you into Babylon. Build houses and settle down, plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters and married so that they too may have sons and and daughters. These were all common idioms for maintaining a normal lifestyle. Plant gardens, settle down, build houses, buy lands, marry, and, and give in marriage. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Don't languish. Increase in number. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will, will prosper. Pray for your enemies, he says. Sounds very much like our Lord's uh, words in Matthew 5. Pray for your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, who, who use you and misuse you. This is what the Lord Almighty the God of Israel says, Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They're prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. If you recall, they had prophets in Babylon, just as they had prophets in Judah. But uh, most of the prophets in Babylon were lying prophets, and they had convinced the people that their exile would be very, uh, very short uh, life. They would be there two years only, and then they would be uh, returned. To Jerusalem, But Jeremiah says, this is what the Lord says, in contrast to what the prophets tell you. When the 70 years are completed for, for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart or your mind. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. This is a promise. That they would be returned from exile, a promise that was that was fulfilled in 536 B.C., a little over 70 years after this letter was was written, when they came back with, with Zerubbabel and some others back to Jerusalem to rebuild the, the city. So Jeremiah promises that God has plans for them, and they're good plans, plans to give them a hope and a future and restore them again to the land from which they had, had been taken. You may say the Lord has raised up prophets for us in Babylon, the prophets the lying prophets that declared they would return in two years. But this is what the Lord says about the king who sits on David's throne. That would be Zedekiah, who is the last of the kings of Judah, and all the people who remain in the city, whom Jeremiah had called before bad figs, your countrymen who did not go with you into exile. This is what the Lord says. I will send sword, famine, and plague against them, and I will make them like poor figs that are so bad they cannot be eaten. I will pursue them with a sword, Famine and plague and will make them abhorrent to all the kingdoms of the earth and an object of cursing and horror of scorn and reproach among all the nations where I drive them, for they have not listened to my words, declares the Lord, words that I, I sent to them again and again by my servants the prophets. And you exiles have not listened either, declares the Lord. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, all you exiles, whom I have sent away from Jerusalem to Babylon. Not only will your return, your release from Babylon not be soon, but those that are now in Jerusalem will be taken into captivity as well. Your, their king, the courtiers, their militia, and uh, there will be nothing, nothing left until at the end of the 70 years predicted for, uh, for your captivity, you'll be returned. Now, he appends to this letter a prediction of the early death of three prophets who were apparently among those that were prophesying a a very early release from exile. Verse 21. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says about Ahab, son of Kaliah, and Zedekiah, son of Maasiah, who are prophesying lies to you in my name. I will hand them over to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he will put them to death before your very eyes. Because of them, all the exiles from Judah who are in Babylon will use this curse. The Lord treated you like Zedekiah and Ahab, whom the king of Babylon burned in the fire. For they have done outrageous things in Israel. They have committed adultery with their neighbor's wives. And in my name they have spoken lies, which I did not tell them to do. I know it, and I am witness to it, declares the Lord. Unlike uh, Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who walked through the fiery furnace unscathed, these two prophets would be burned in... In, in the fire, in Nebuchadnezzar's fire, and uh, their death would become a, a a saying, a proverb, a proverbial curse in Babylon. May the Lord roast you in the fire, is the way the phrase actually reads, just like he did uh, Ahab and Zedekiah. Jeremiah wasn't commending the practice, he was simply reporting that that would take place. Now finally, stick with me for just about five more minutes here, uh, there is a third uh, false prophet, Shemaiah the Nahelamite. I uh, told the first uh, first service that that strikes me as a as a good name for a, a wet fly, nah- a Nahelamite, uh, or some kind of bug that you find under a rock. It's apparently a family name. Tell Shem- Shemaiah the Nahelamite, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says, you sent letters in your own name to all the people in Jerusalem. To Zephaniah, son of Messiah the priest, and to all the other priests. And you said uh, to Zephaniah, and then there follows the text of this letter. This, was a, this man was a self-appointed pro- uh, prophet who declared that he had heard from God and that the reigning high priest was to be dethroned, and this other man, Zephaniah, would uh, replace him. And he says to Zephaniah, when you're in place, and when the Lord has appointed you priest in place of Jehoiada to be in charge of the house of the Lord, when, he, when you are the high priest, you should put any madman, and he uses the, the word that I'm sure you, you've, used, you've heard Jews use. It's even used today in, in modern Hebrew for a crazy person, Meshuggah. Menachem Begin used it once for some, uh, someone I've forgotten who. It's a crazy man, a madman. So if, if there happens to be any madman who's prophesying in the, in the court of the Lord, put him in stocks and neck irons. Of course, he was thinking of Jeremiah. So why have you not reprimanded Jeremiah from Anathoth, who poses as a prophet among you? He has sent this message to us in Babylon. Note, it will be a long time. Therefore, build houses and settle down, plant gardens and eat what they produce. Zephaniah the priest, however, read the letter to Jeremiah the prophet. And so then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Send this message to all the exiles. This is what the Lord says about Shemaiah the Nehelamite, Because Shemaiah has prophesied to you, even though I did not send him, and has led you to believe a lie. This is what the Lord says. I will surely punish Shemaiah the Nehelamite and his descendants. He will have no one left among this people, nor will he see... The good things I will do for my people declares the Lord, because he has preached rebellion against me. In contrast to those who would see good, those for whom the Lord had a, a future and a hope, this man and his descendants would see uh, see no good. He would he would die in Babylon, and uh, for all practical purposes, he would be childless. Now, the question I'm sure in your mind, as it was in mine the first time I read through this passage, is what does this have to say to us? A piece of uh, of 6th century correspondence to another culture, another people, another situation. How could this possibly have any relevance to us uh, today in our, in our situation? Well, the relevance is simply this. All of us, to some degree or another, are in exile in that, that we find ourselves in hard and, and difficult and harsh circumstances. I don't know of anyone who's excluded. Either we're there because of our own misdeeds, or we've been victimized by the sins of others. Now, it may be that you find your circumstances very hard because of some action that you've taken in the past, that some disobedience, some specific act of disobedience against the Lord that uh, has resulted in, 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 very hard, in a very hard situation for you. Perhaps you married a non-Christian, and you knew that that was contrary to God's will, but you did so. Now, we need to understand that uh, Scripture prohibits the marriage of Christians and non-Christians not because non-Christians are non-persons as far as God is concerned. It's, it's because God loves non-Christians as well as Christians and he knows that an unequal yoke of that nature will result in hardship for both and he wants to spare non-Christians as well as Christians the hurt and the pain of, of that sort of marriage. And, and, and so he says, no, that, that's not for us. But maybe uh, maybe you didn't listen and, and your, your partner now is not a Christian. And there's a lot of strain in the relationship and a lot of hurt and pain. Or, or perhaps you married a Christian, but you knew at the time that he or she was not a godly person and and they had no desire to follow God's will then, nor now. And so you're going in, in opposite direction. Or maybe you've muddled up your finances because of greed or some materialistic desire and it looks impossible to, uh, to get yourself out of debt. Or there could be any number of things that you or I could do that would that would put us in the same situation that, that the exiles found themselves in, in hard, harsh, difficult circumstances. Or we may be there because of the sins of someone else, someone who defrauded us financially, or a, a husband or wife who walked out and left us alone with the children. Or, or uh, you are a, a young person in a home that's been broken by divorce and, and you're experiencing all the pain and, and the hurt of a, of a broken family. And your life has been shattered as, as a result. And, and you find yourself feeling very much like the exiles, without any hope, without any future, without anything to live for, and you feel that, that because of your past sins, perhaps, you've disqualified yourself, and so there's, there's nothing that you can do to get out of your situation. Or you may feel that the only answer is to get out of the situation. And so you're restless and uncomfortable and, and unhappy. And if that's so, then you need to listen to what, what Jeremiah has to say. The first thing that, that we need to recall is that the Lord said, I sent you into exile. The Lord is big enough, powerful enough to accept responsibility for our circumstances. Now, it may be that our, our actions actually sent us into exile and that we're reaping the consequences of some sinful act, but, uh, or it may be that someone else's actions put us there. But God himself accepts responsibility. And it's not that he himself determines evil, causes evil things to happen. Uh, that's Satan. Satan is, is the liar and the murderer who deceives and destroys and wants to blight and, and ruin the quality of our lives and destroy human life. But but he operates under under God's control. He doesn't do anything without permission from God. We don't live in a runaway world where, where God is in anguish about the state of things and, and powerless to control Satan. We're not dualists. We don't believe in two equal and opposite powers. We believe in a sovereign, powerful God who is good. And uh, we also believe in, a, in an evil created being, Satan, who operates under God's control. It's so clear from the book of Job, as I've said over and over again. After doing all the evil things that Satan did to To Job, he comes back to God and God says, you moved me against my servant Job. God accepts responsibility. I have a a friend, actually he's more of an acquaintance than a friend, who is uh, uh, becoming a well-known writer, a professional writer, writes uh, frequently for Christian uh, periodicals. And some years ago, about uh, 15 years ago, as a matter of fact, he lost his nine-year-old daughter through cancer. And uh, I had quite a bit of contact with him at that time. Just this last week, two weeks ago, he wrote an article in which he pointed out that God had absolutely nothing to do with that event, that he couldn't live in a world where God kills little children. And I have to agree, because that's not what Scripture says. But we do live in a world where God controls every event of life and nothing happens. It's beyond his purview. If he doesn't permit it, it doesn't happen. Now, all I know is that he's good. And he's powerful. And I don't understand why he permits specific things to happen, but I know that whatever happens will result in salvation. I don't even need to see what the result is. I may never see it. And I shouldn't, from my vantage point, try to say, well, you know, God permitted this thing to happen to me because my husband's going to become a Christian through it, or my children will. We can't say that sort of thing because we don't know what what God is going to do through the circumstances he permits to come into our life, all we know is that he is going to bring out of that some good in someone's life or contribute in some way to his plan to to bring salvation to the world. I know that. I know that. And therefore, I don't need to be, be frustrated when things don't go my way. Paul says, all things Work together for the good, and the good that Paul is talking about in context is is the salvation that he's bringing to the world. Now, that's the first thing we need to know, that, uh, that God is in control. We don't live in a runaway world. Your circumstances are God's circumstances for you, where you are today. He knows, he understands, and he ultimately takes responsibility for them. The second thing he wants you to do is to know that there may not be an easy or an immediate way out. Our, our tendency is to get very restless and uneasy and unhappy because our circumstances are not good. We want our circumstances to change. And we think that if God is powerful and if he's good, then he'll change our circumstances immediately. But that's not necessarily so. What God wants you to do is to stay put. Settle down. And not necessarily look for a way out. Now, it may come about that God will give you a way out. And it'll be a righteous way out. It'll be his way out. But until he provides a godly way out, the way out is to stay put. Just settle down. Don't be restless. And do what James calls endure. Now, endurance is not... uh, matter of clenching your fist and gritting your teeth and deciding you're going to tough it out no matter what. When James talks about endurance, he's talking about obedience in the face of, of, of counter-influences, obeying no matter what, obeying God in the midst of our circumstances. See, our, our tendency when things are not going well is to justify disobedience. You, you think, my husband is such a jerk. Why should I be kind to him? Why should I give him the time of day? He doesn't care about me. Or all my wife does is nag, and uh, if I come home tonight, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to catch it from her, and so I might as well uh, spend some time with the boys and swap yarns and hoist a few. And Why go home? Because uh, there's nothing there at home for me. Or if you're working in an office where your employer uses you and abuses you for his profit, we think, well, uh, why not dip into the petty cash? Why not steal stamps? Why not steal time? Because after all, he's just using me. Why should I be be upright and righteous and godly in this, in this situation? But Jeremiah says, no. No. And James says, endure. Just obey. No matter what the the counter-indications may be, be godly right where you are. Paul says in 1 Timothy 4, one of the things that he's learned uh, about life, he passes on this information to Timothy so he can teach the church in Ephesus. He says, godliness with contentment is great gain. Because we brought nothing into this world and, and we'll take nothing out. And therefore, he says, if I have food and raiment, I'll be content. Can you say that? Can I say that? That I'm content with God and a few of the bare necessities of life that I really don't need anything else? Can you say I don't really need a wife right now? I don't need a husband. I don't need a a good-paying job. I don't need full health. I'll I'll live in the circumstances in which God has placed me and I'll be content there. I'll stop being restless and wanting something more. I'll let God be my source of everything that, that I need. And then again in Philippians 4, Paul says, I've, I've learned the secret of living in any and all circumstances. I've learned how to be abased. I've learned how to abound. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. See, What Christ promises is not an early out or an easy out of our difficulties. What he promises is his sufficiency for every circumstance that we need, that we have. He is all we need. If we have him and the bare necessities, that's all we need. And that, that outlook, godliness with contentment, Paul says, is great gain. Now, uh, the third thing that uh, Jeremiah says to us in the rest of Scripture is uh, that we are to seek peace for those around us and pray for them. Isn't that an interesting perspective on, on life? Those, Babylon represents the enemies of Judah, and throughout Scripture, Babylon represents the world, which in a very real sense is is our enemy, not the world of people, but the world of ideas, but it also includes the people who who have those ideas. And many of the people we live with are in opposition to the, to the truth and to the gospel, and we find it very difficult to live with them, and we would like to tell them off, and we'd like to get away from them, we'd like to walk out of this office where all these ungodly people live, we'd like to walk away from this husband or wife who who has no interest in spiritual things we think if i could just get away then i could i could be the right kind of person jeremiah says no pray for them pray for them seek their peace and their prosperity do them good do them material good do them spiritual good That's exactly what jesus tells us in matthew 5 would you turn there with me in the sermon on the mount <clears throat> Verse uh, 43. You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That was a rabbinic inference, uh, which is really not anywhere stated in Scripture. The Old Testament teaches love your enemy. Love your neighbor and also love your enemy. But they had inferred from the command to love your neighbor that they were to hate their, their enemy. Jesus corrects them. He's not correcting the Old Testament. He's correcting their misinterpretation of it. And says, I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. The reason follows. He causes his son to to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. God doesn't cause it to rain merely on the fields of farmers who love him and who worship him. He spreads his, his good things throughout the world regardless of whether people love him or not. And our Lord says, that's the way we ought to react to people around us who do not love God. We're to love them as God loves them. We're to seek their good as God seeks their good. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, perfect in love as your heavenly Father is perfect. The word perfect does not mean without flaw. It means to the end. Love people to the end. Love extensively. Love intensively. Love with everything that God gives uh, with his resources for love. Love them all regardless of of how they, they respond. Augustine once said, to return good with evil is demonic. To return good for good is natural. To return good for evil is divine. You see, that may be divine, but it isn't company policy. It's not the way we do things around here. But we do if we have the grace of God. We can pray for those around us. We can love them. We can share the gospel with them. We can be a a source of, of salvation and, and redemption. We can impart to them the, the knowledge of the word that, that God imparts to us as we read it and, and study it. And we can pray for them. You see, that gives us hope in the midst of our circumstances. The problem is that we think that when we're in circumstances that are hard and difficult and harsh, that we, we can't do anything. We have to wait till we get out. And particularly if we've been placed in those circumstances because of our disobedience... But it's not past sin that disqualifies us. It's present sin. Sin repented of never disqualifies us. And even if you've destroyed your marriage through through infidelity or, or through some some evil action in, in the past, or even if you're just, you, you, you've married the wrong person or, or you have hurt and hindered someone else, if that's past and you've repented of it, that doesn't disqualify you. You could be useful right where you are, and that's what gives hope and meaning and significance to life. Now you don't have to wait until you get out. You can do it now. And then finally, Jeremiah's final word, is that God has a future and a, and a hope for us. Now for Israel, the future and a hope was was physical. It was return from, from exile. Exile. For us, it's all the spiritual blessings that are given to us in Christ Jesus. The New Testament, the New Covenant, never promises that everything will go well for us in this life. There there are no guarantees that you'll be delivered from some disease or from some health problem or from a a marriage in which you have to struggle or from poverty. There are no guarantees that that will be our future and and our hope. Our hope is heaven. Heaven. One of these days, our Lord's going to come back, and he's going to set everything right. And ultimately, that's what we look forward to. And when we get there, we'll say what Paul said. The suffering that, that I've endured in this world is not worthy to be compared with the glory that's mine now. We'll see the comparative worth of being with our Lord and, and the, the what seem to be great, but are really, in comparison, very minor minor afflictions that we have now. That's our future and our hope. God may call you to be sick to the end of your days until you see the Lord or you, he comes for you. He may call you to, to struggle with a difficult marriage. He may. There, there is no guarantee that there is any easy or early out, but God will give you the grace where you are to be contented and uh, to be godly and to have an influence upon the people around you for good and for God. And in time, the Lord will deliver you. He's coming back. Or you're going to him. And when we see him, he's going to set everything right. Now, that's what delivers us from depression and from despair. There's hope. There's hope for the present. There's hope for the future. I have a new friend that I've been corresponding with who's in, uh, in prison right now in, in California. He's been charged with first-degree murder. He will probably spend most of the rest of his life in a federal penitentiary in, in California, and uh, we've been uh, in our, in our uh, letters discussing the, the question of guilt. I'd like to read a section of his letter because it's a good illustration of the sort of thing that, that we've been talking about. Um, guilt, I've seen, is very selfish. And, uh, and, is, and is inherently sin. Paul states it beautifully. How can we who are dead to sin, i.e. selfishness, live any longer therein? Uh, I was sinning by allowing guilt, the enemy's device designed to overthrow me, to take residence in my thought life. That sin, as all sin, must meet the blood of Christ, and I, realizing it as such, was ever so happy to introduce the two. Experiencing forgiveness and speaking that to myself has been a very fruitful weapon against Satan's fiery darts. It's funny now in my experience, truth always exposes and then destroys the lies of the old fool. He's talking about Satan. An offspring of all of this has been an awareness of the struggles of those who are here with me. I've noticed that I can pray more effectively because I know the frustrations and misconceptions that they have. Thus an avenue for ministry is now open to me. And I, and I thought uh, that's, a, that's a, a great illustration of the, uh, of the ideas that we have in Jeremiah 29 because I can't think of any more desperate, hopeless situation than a young man who is facing a lifetime in, in, a, in a federal penitentiary. And yet he sees that God has a hope for him. He's been delivered from his guilt. His guilt does not disqualify him for his present ministry. He can pray for those around him. He can influence him. He goes on to describe some of the things that he's done, distributing literature and conducting a small Bible study. And God is using him right where he is. And he knows that one of these days, regardless of what happens to him, he may not, there may not be an easy or early out for him. But no matter what, one of these days, the Lord is coming back. He has a plan. And it's a good one. He has a future and a hope for this young man. And he does for you. So don't let the old fool intimidate you into believing that you have been set aside and you're worthless and useless in God's scheme of things. That is not true. That is a lie that comes straight from the pit. God has a future and a hope for you where you are and for all eternity. Let's pray. Father, deliver us from this uh, from this feeling that we have nothing to say, nothing we can do, because we have, for one reason or another, disqualified ourselves, or because we are so inhibited and frustrated by our circumstances that they we're too preoccupied to be useful. And Deliver us, Lord, from that sense of hopelessness that causes us to despair and leads us into depression. Help us to realize that we've We've been set free. Where we are. Help us to be honest with our sin and repent of it and put it away and then lay hold of your of your your strength, your current strength, in order to face the circumstances that you've given to us. Help us to be loving to those who misuse us. Help us to be bold in our proclamation of, of the truth. Help us to seek peace and prosperity for those that are around us, knowing that you're going to work through us to will and to do of your good pleasure. And then we look forward to your coming again, Lord, when you will ultimately and finally set everything right. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.